choose to go to the moon. Okay, everybody, welcome. This is the uh, ultimate episode of the uh, From the Earth to the Moon podcast. Uh, I'm Doug. My co-host is Peter. Peter, welcome. Welcome. Especially, it's the ultimate episode, especially if you've been waiting for it to be over. That you're going to be extremely... <laughs> Finally. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm sad that we're uh, we're wrapping this up. You know, I mean, I've, I've liked this series since it came out. And I'm glad we did this. And I think that... Uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground for our listeners. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, they made this 20 years ago and they haven't made anything... As, no one's touched it. It hasn't been. It, nothing has approached the dedication that this series really had and the focus. And it really was, you know, because of um, it was a product of the time, as we said, that Tom Hanks, um, uh, I think, was a showrunner in many ways because he was extremely famous. The peak of his fame in Apollo 13 had been a big hit. And, you know, he threw his weight behind it. And, yes. and HBO is king of television. You know, right. this is around this time of The Sopranos. You yeah. know, like they really had a. You know, this this aired Sunday night, same night as Sopranos. You know, this was yeah. a, a big television event for its day. And remember, you know, even though there's 12 episodes, it was just done over six weeks. You know, it was like a little two-hour movie every Sunday. Right. Um, I I wish that they had. You know, they could almost do uh, a mini series on Gemini. Like Gemini is so interesting, and so much stuff happens. It's not covered here at all. You know, here we only see. You know, Gemini 4, Gemini 8, and Gemini 12, and even those in just very, very, very small bits. But, like, there's, you could do a lot on Gemini, but maybe someday. Maybe someday. You could do a series on, 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 on what, uh, what's it called? Unmanned probes. Like, you know, they could do a dramatic sign, you know, yeah. dorky no, science Yeah, no, you could series. do the Pioneers and the Voyagers, and yeah, that'd I mean, be great. It'd be a little whatever. hard on shuttle. STS 38, L... <laughs> Right, you, you know, know what they do. They'd only focus on the ones with fatalities. Right, but it'd be hard to do shuttle, you know. And right. the uh, the grass grew at 1.6 <laughs> times the rate that the grass control group grew on Earth, you it, know. Well, it would, yeah, it would be like, they would just, it would be a litany <laughs> of disaster. That's the only way that they would be able to make it. It's like, you know, they'd have one episode on Jake Garn's um, vomiting. <laughs> <laughs> they say vomit. that Jake Garn had the worst space motion sickness of anyone in history. Yeah. Right? And they could have a whole episode on, like, holds and scrubs, you know? The crew was taken out of the Columbia after 11 hours on the pad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. All right. Episode 12. Yep. Uh, Peter, you spoke French in high school. Perhaps you could pronounce this episode title so I don't wreck it. <laughs> Le Voyage dans la Lune. Ah, see better than I would have done. Directed by Jonathan Mostow of Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines fame. Um, And written by Tom Hanks, also airing May 10th, 1998. Did you know, I'll just say one... not of Terminator 3 fame. (laughs) One brief Terminator 3 thing. Um, uh, One interesting story that I always always find amazing about Terminator 3 is that... um, the kid from Terminator 2, uh, the kid who played uh, John Connor, mm-hmm. uh, whose name is, um, who played John Connor in that? Uh, John Connor is played by Eddie Furlong. I had to think right. for a second there. You know, by then, Eddie Furlong was a hardcore drug user from everything I've read. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he he really, really, really wanted to 
replay the role of John Connor in Terminator 3, and uh, they all wanted him to do it, and I read that they just didn't feel like they could risk $100 million a movie on a guy who was battling alcohol and drug addiction. Yeah, they probably and couldn't be sure. I mean, and, and, and then that's why Mostow picked Nick Stahl uh, to go ahead and sort of take up the mantle of John Connor. Anyway, but but back to uh, <laughs> back to from the Earth to the Moon. Okay, Hanks wrote this again. Um, there's no Hanks intro in this episode. Uh, I don't know if you noticed they, yeah. they don't they don't have it. They don't have um, one. In, not everyone has it. I'd I think probably two thirds of them. I, I don't think so. I think this is the only one without no, a Hanks intro. I don't think so. I think there's a I'm few. I'm pretty of them. sure. Really? Pretty sure. Yeah. Pretty sure. And we get uh, Blythe Danner, who I believe is the mother of Gwyneth Paltrow, correct? Yes. Uh, doing the, she does the the sort of the voiceover for this. I guess they can't have Hanks uh, narrate this thing. Right. Um, uh, so Blythe Danner, again, sort of serves as our, as our narrator for this. Thing. Yeah, she's the mother of Gwyneth Paltrow. And isn't she, is she the mother in A Christmas Story? Jeez, I can't remember. She's been in a lot of stuff, though. Yeah, if she's not the mother in A Christmas Story, she looks a lot like the mother in The Christmas Story. Um, anyway, I digress. Um, so we are introduced to... Uh, can you pronounce the French filmmaker's name properly? Uh, Millier? Georges Millier, I guess. George Millier? Or Millier. Right? So Millier. Who is it? Uh, yeah, it's... Right. Uh, so speaking of metaphors, right? So George Melier, uh is a sort of like early pioneer in uh, filmmaking, doing all sorts of creative work and making special effects. And the movie sort of documents his uh, his uh, production of a, a early fantastical film about a voyage to the moon, which serves as a metaphor for the entire series, right? Uh, <laughs> of them making a television show about uh, voyages to the moon. Right. And Hanks plays his assistant. I don't remember if the assistant gets a name, but he plays the young and old version of uh, Jean-Luc, his assistant. Right. And yeah, we are a lot, treated... a lot of interviews that are, are shown in this episode. There's a lot of it's it's documentarian the episode. So sort of like yeah, sort of pseudo documentarian, right. I guess. Um, and we are treated to all manner of uh, uh, humorous and primitive special effects in the Melier studio as they uh, you know make all the scenes of uh, building the sets, of flying a rocket to the moon. Landing on the moon, interacting with the, the citizens of the moon, and a return back to Earth. Which interestingly ends... To me, the most impressive thing was that the return to the Earth ended in a splashdown. Yeah. You know, they got that right. That was really interesting. And there's some intellectual um, property theft in there, too. Which, yeah, 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 which we'll get to. Um, and then uh, we, we sort of focus in this episode on... Um, uh, Gene Cernan and uh, Jack Schmidt, right? The uh, right. Uh, commander and lunar module pilot of Apollo 17, our last manned mission to the moon uh, ever uh, up to right. now, sadly. And, and Jack Schmidt, you know, had uh, was featured prominently in episode 10 also where uh, about Apollo 15 because he's a geologist who um, trained. He's a geologist turned astronaut 
who uh, who who trained a lot of the other Apollo astronauts about how to find how to look at the lunar surface and what specimens to bring back and how to do it. And you know, Tom Amandes, who plays him, is really good. Like, yeah. I really like him. I like his whole sort of demeanor. And the yes. way he sort of carries himself. Poor Ron Evans, right? The uh, command module pilot in Apollo 17 gets nary a mention in this show. Right. Like he is, for all intents and purposes, left out. Well, that's pretty, um, much, <laughs> pretty much the way it is if you're a command module pilot anyway. Yeah, I know. Right. Uh, memo C. Al Warden. Um <laughs> And we get, you know, we all, right, there's there's two sort of pseudo-documentaries going on. One is Jean-Luc is being interviewed as an old man talking about Georges Melier, and we see, for example, Chris Kraft as an old man talking about the Apollo missions. And, and for example, we see old Chris Kraft say that by 17, like, there wasn't a lot of interest in grand exploration. They wanted them to just come home and be safe so they could close out the program, right? Right. And say that we, we did it, and we got them there, and we got them back. Right, because they knew they um, were the, right at this point. They had already planned out everything. They knew they were that everything was was done. That the they weren't going back, uh, at least in the near term. And they also at this point, obviously, interest waned rapidly after Apollo Eleven. So by Apollo Seventeen, you know, there was they keep talking about how there are not many people watching. Right. Um, there's a couple of interesting things that are completely left out of this episode. Um, and the fact that, for example, the lunar module pilot on Apollo 17 is supposed to be none other than Joe Angle, right? Our, mm-hmm. our, our former X-15 pilot. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Joe Angle gets bumped largely for political purposes, right? Because the National Academy of Sciences and the scientists in the administration at NASA pushed very, very hard for, you know, they had recruited an astronaut group that were made up of scientists and engineers, uh, most of whom would fly on Skylab. Uh, but they wanted someone to fly on a lunar mission, and Joe Angle was dropped from his spot uh, under pressure, um, and Deke Slayton famously caved to pressure yeah. um, and put Jack Schmidt in there, so um, Joe Angle forever lost his chance to fly on the moon. And uh, Joe Angle, uh, who I think had astronaut wings from his X-15 missions, I had to double-check that, but he did not fly... Until uh, STS, I think he's he's he flew an STS two, right? Because he's he's Joe Angle and Richard Truly, right? Yes. The two that flew STS two. Uh, STS two. So you know, and that's 1981. Right. He hangs in there. That is a long time, right? Talk damn about you know, damn sight less exciting than going to the moon. Oh yeah, but talk about uh, delayed gratification. Jesus. However, so, uh, you know, I can see how. If you're going to try to do science on the moon, if if it's if you've achieved your political and social goals, uh, it, it's pretty reasonable to send Schmidt up there. Yeah, Joe Angle did get astronaut wings. He flew over 50 miles in the X-15 one, two, three times. The third time on October 14th, 1965, anniversary of the uh, breaking of the sound barrier up there, by the way. He flew 50.4 miles, but the other two times he was a little higher. So he, he technically was an astronaut three times in the X-15, which is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, I'm sure he would have rather walked on the moon than flown yeah. the shuttle in, in low Earth orbit. 
Yeah. Um, the other thing, you know, I think that they could have done a little more with Cernan. Um, and like, for example, like I said in our discussion of, uh, I think, I don't remember if it was this one or episode 11, but, um, you know, like they could have done a lot more with Cernan's experience in Gemini. And for example, Cernan did an EVA in Gemini 9. Um, that's not really covered at all in this series. And Cernan's EVA on Gemini 9 is famous for being a complete failure. Uh, he overheated, right. he fogged his visor. Uh, he got virtually none of his mission objectives done, and he had tremendous trouble controlling his body outside of the spacecraft. And, you know, that directly led, for example, to to Aldrin's idea of training in the pool and the specialized hand grips and footholds that Aldrin helped design, and which we see very briefly uh, in the Gemini 12 sequence at the end of the very first episode of the series, Can We Do This? But, you know, like, that's an, a really, really interesting footnote you know also interesting and unmentioned i believe in this episode is that um cernan almost lost his spot as commander of apollo 17 he was flat hatting in a helicopter and he was flying too low and he caught a skid on a riverbank and crashed Hmm. Uh, and he destroyed a helicopter and walked away largely uninjured but you know it raised very serious concerns about his judgment Right. Um, and he, through through a miracle and a lot of probably some politicking, he was able to keep his seat as commander of Apollo 17. Uh, and none of that's mentioned here, which would have been, I think, really would have been interested. Yeah. Um, and then we, we see the launch and uh, we, we cut practically directly to uh, Cernan and Schmidt with no mention of... of uh, of the command module pilot uh, <laughs> to uh, to their descent down to Taurus Litro. And right. uh, we are greeted by Ed Fendel, who is our cameraman in mission control, uh, controlling the camera on the lunar rover. Yeah, I, like, I really like those shots guys. Like, where he's gingerly like maneuvering the camera controls <laughs> yeah looking looking intense uh it's that was actually a very nice part of the episode to kind of show that that's that's what make one of the things that makes this series enjoyable to watch is are those little kind of the dramatic the dramatic take on those those historic events and and brings them to life um, right, and and how like you know something you take for granted that they have film of them on the moon was you know right. that was somebody doing that and working and all the planning and thought that went into that and the communications right. link that had to exist to that camera, right? And then the in best, real time, right? And the best part was when they when they let when they leave and they blast off, and he you know he has to anticipate when to pan the camera up because if he does it you know because of the the speed of light and the three second delay each way in signaling um if he doesn't anticipate tilting the camera up and take a guess as to when they're actually going to fly up and at what rate he'll miss it and they've never gotten the picture they tried it before and they couldn't do it they tried it on 15 and 16 i believe right and so like this is their last chance to get like a a good nice cinematic picture of them blasting off right at the ascent stage of the lunar module going up flying off the moon right and and he nails it and, you know, and it's funny because they they show that clip all the time. Yep. Any show about the Apollo program, they show that clip because it's so unique yep. and special. Yes, it looks great, and it's crystal clear. You know, that's you know that's the other thing too is how much 
better the image quality got. Like when you when you look at the the sort of ghostly black and white images of Apollo eleven, yeah. right, and the and the utter lack of television from Apollo twelve and thirteen for all intents and purposes. Yeah. You know, um, the quality of the the transmissions gets better and better. The colors get brighter. The image gets sharper. And, you know, most of what you see on TV or if you look on YouTube is is pretty low quality, you know, transfers, you know, from videotapes that have been digitized that were third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation. But but many years ago when I uh, was down at the Johnson Space Center doing research, um, I discovered that there was this archive. I can't remember the building it was in, but there was this room you could go into, and it was, you know, it was it was curated, and you could say like, I would like to watch EVA two of Apollo seventeen, and they would boot it up for you. And it wasn't the original master, of course, but it was a first generation copy off the original master. Right. And I remember being absolutely floored by how clear it looked like i had you know i'd been watching this stuff on you know tv or you know ever since you and i were in elementary school you know on reel-to-reel film projectors you know when the teacher showed us a movie when they were bored yeah and i thought everything was you know grainy and i remember when i was sitting down and watching this stuff how unbelievably clear it was like i was just shocked yeah and I mean, they have, you know, they have everything. They have everything in in such good quality, uh, you know, storage. Like it's it's incredible to see this archive. Yeah, I mean, some of the some of the the only thing that gives you the sense about how good some of the pictures they took um, were is when you actually online, you know, there there are large public archives now of all the photographs that were taken on the moon, and you know they were done on medium format cameras, most of them. I mean, they had 35 millimeter also, but they're beautiful, clear, amazing pictures that really give you a sense of what the lunar light looked like, what sp- what the light in space looks like, um, what colors are like. I mean, the images are amazing. And, you know, they have a, a much different feel to them than watching like Apollo 11, you know, the, the images from the lunar surface. I mean, it looks like, you know, a daguerreotype that they somebody dragged behind right. a truck. And with all sorts of after images, you know, they Terrible. walk in front of an object and you can see the object after image behind them. So, you know, uh, uh, um, when I left my research time at NASA, so once I discovered this archive, I used to go there in my free time and watch stuff. And then when I was leaving, I said to the guy who was the curator, I said, I sure wish I could take some of these with me. You know, I just threw like a throwaway and he didn't even blink. He was like, you can. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, just he said, put in a request. You know, and, and I was working in a laboratory then, and he said, just have your lab boss sign it. Yeah. And uh, just, you know, it's whatever you want. And he's like, but just remember, your request has to be very specific. And I was like, that's interesting. So I got the form, and it was like, it was in triplicate with carbons. I distinctly remember that. Uh, government operation. <laughs> uh, and, um, and I just made this insane wish list. Like, I wrote, you know, like... You know, Apollo 11 EVA, Apollo 12 EVA, you know, everything. Like, I just wrote out everything I could think of. I was really only interested in Apollo then at the time. And I wrote this crazy list and I handed it to the uh, principal investigator whose lab I was working in who could not have possibly cared less. (laughs) And she signed it without even looking at it. And I gave it to the guy and he gave me the stink eye because he knew what I was doing. Like, like that was that's a little greedy of you, son, you know, like. (laughs) So I said, well, look, she signed 
So anyway, then my time at NASA came to an end. I flew back to my house. And then a few weeks later, I was at work and my wife called me and she said, you got a giant box from NASA. And I was like, no way. I still have them. They sent me like, I think they sent me about 40 VHS tapes. Like everything I wanted, they sent on VHS and they sent me like 40 tapes and I still have them. And they, they look amazing. And if you want to see them, you can. And because, for example, if you go to Amazon spacecraft films which didn't exist then but spacecraft films has digitized a lot of this stuff um, and they have multi-dvd sets on almost all the apollo missions they have special ones on gemini they have ones on some of the unmanned missions uh they there's there's one on the saturn 1b there's one on the saturn 5 i mean just if you want to watch 10 hours of you know ultra high res footage of you know the saturn b assembly you can now but none of this existed back then but what i have on those videotapes is now all available to the public uh through spacecraft films with which peter and i have no financial ties for disclaimer yeah and by the way if you have if you're on the autism spectrum at all you're going to be very excited about the 10 hours of saturn 1b assembly the worst part is I bought the Saturn 1B. Of course you did. <laughs> and the worst, even worse is I liked it. You watched the really whole 10 good. hour. At the end of the 10 hours, you were like, it's over? Damn it. Yeah, no, it's great. It, they're really, really interesting. I mean, if, if you're uh, if you're if you're if you're here with us at episode twelve of From the Earth to the Moon podcast, like go to Amazon and just type <laughs> spacecraft films, and I'm telling you, you will be buying. And they're dirt cheap. Yeah. They're they're like they're like if you can buy these DVD sets used for $5 now, and mm. there's, I, I think everyone I bought was like three, four, five, six discs. It's really impressive. That's good. Cause I was going to suggest you just digitize 40 VHS tapes and link <laughs> right. them to the show. I still have a working VCR. Um, okay. So we, we were, we were, we got, we left the show. We were talking about Ed Fendel, right? And then we, uh, we returned to, uh, uh old Emmett Seaborn. Right, who is talking about how people are bored, no one's watching, right? And perhaps, you know, one of the most ambitious missions, Apollo 17, the public is bored, no one's watching. Uh, right, that's kind of Emmett Seaborn's, you know, role in the series, just to basically talk about how people are dumb. Uh, I mean, I understand it's an important role, but it's kind of funny. Like, he's back again in this episode to, to base, make the same point. <laughs> he gets like they trot him out. Again, yeah, it's funny. We see uh, Gene Surgeon, Gene Surgeon, Gene Cernan knock the fender, the rear fender off the um, the lunar rover, which they fixed, I believe, with a map cover. So they mentioned that he dented the fender, but they don't show how he fixed it. But I believe it was a map cover that they sort of, with duct tape, God bless duct no, tape. No, I think they clamped it. They clamped it because then at the end, he has to take the clamps back in. Yeah, but the cover, the, but the fender that they make, I'm pretty sure is a map cover. Yeah. It's uh here. I'm looking it up really quick. Um, yeah, I mean anything like flat, you know, like rectangular that they could clip to just prevent the dust from shooting up onto them. Yeah, but it's pretty impressive that they were able to sort of do that on the moon, you know. Yeah. Because the back wheel was throwing a ton of dirt all over them before they were able to fix it. Right. Um. Yeah, maps, maps. Apparently, I think maps and the cover. Um. But again, they don't. They just show them sort of talking about it. Um, and, you know, this portrays this episode kind of portrays 
Cernan as a romantic, you know, because yeah. Cernan did not speak that way when he was a young man. If you watch his, there's a documentary about him that's on Netflix, I believe, called The Last Man on the Moon, same title as yeah. his book. Yeah, I saw that. Um, you know, he kind of waxes philosophic about both the space program and sort of the toll it took on his family. Uh, but if you watch interviews with young Cernan, he never talked that way. Like, right. It's sort of interesting. Um, and, it, you know, it's impressive how long their EVAs get, you know, like I think Apollo 11, the EVA is like two hours, you know, their first EVA is seven hours and 12 minutes on Apollo 17. Yeah, like they they're sp- really, you know, they've got second and third generation plus backpacks, like they really know how to do it now. Yeah. They're not so scared. Yep. They spend a lot of time running around and driving right. around. EVA 2, they cover 10 stations. They drive five miles yeah right uh we see astronaut uh i think uh bob parker who plays deke slayton in apollo 13 by the way Mm -hmm. um and we see old lee silver right old lee silver right again we see all all these characters from all these other episodes brought back as as uh old men Um, right uh, and then we see the orange soil right the famed orange soil which actually turns out to be uh what they initially thought was volcanic glass, and I think later on they said it was actually not volcanic glass. No, I think it, uh, it was right. It was it was it was some type of glass, but it was billions of years old. It was like formed right. during the moon. Right, but they thought it was volcanic, but in the end, I think they concluded that it wasn't. And there are some, by the way, you know, talking about photos of um, lunar missions, like some of the ones from Apollo seventeen are so good. I mean, there's a bunch of famous ones, like the one with um, Jack Schmidt with the flag and the moon over the flag, and the flag's kind of at this angle. There's a bunch of ones that if you look through the, the photos on the NASA site um, or, or, you know, where they're collected. They're right, the Lunar domain, Surface Journal. Right. They're, um, you'll recognize a bunch of them, but there's some, they're really great ones. You know, they're really great pictures of them, like a picture of a tired but sort of pensive, uh, happy, but sort of tired looking gene cernan all covered in dirt you know in the suit yeah after the, after the eva right, inside the limb and you know they're just a lot of great pictures and the other thing too is you know they they got better at taking the photos you know like yeah. in between missions they got better at figuring out which cameras how to set them and the, you know the, i think the apollo 15 16 and 17 images also kind of look better because of the rover like it's yeah. cool to have the rover in the shots with them like it gives it a whole other sort of sense of exploration like you get the sense that they're really ranging far from the lunar module and they did sometimes yeah. you know they went five miles but like the the other you know and it's it's good for scale too because it's hard to have scale on the lunar surface um, right and we all know about how big a car is right and it's great for scale and then you know there's another talking about scale there's that picture of them next to uh on i think it was the eva three where they went to um the big rock um that they right which is which is enormous that rock yeah and there's there's like a you know there's a couple pictures of them like with scale like next to um next to the rock um standing there you know like and just you can see how big this thing is whereas you don't have any scale um except that you can see like jack schmidt standing next to it and it's like five times as tall as he is 
Right. As big as a house. Right. There's one of my favorite photos is it's where uh, Cernan is sitting in the rover and he's behind the lunar module. Yeah. Uh, so you're sort of looking at the back of it and you sort of see the, the, the lunar module and the rover in one shot with an astronaut. Uh, and it's sort of like, you know, he's got a house and a car on the moon now. <laughs> Yeah, and Cernan like, talks about that in this episode about how he lived and worked on the moon service for three days. And I don't know if you noticed, but they don't sleep in their EVA suits. Like we saw early on in That's All There Is, we saw Al Bean and Pete Conrad sleeping in their EVA suits. They, they didn't do that at this point. Yeah, these they, guys, were, they were they're in their they needed skimmies. their rest. Yeah. Right. They needed their rest. Although Cernan talks uh, about how he basically would only sleep a few hours, you know, because he was so excited. Well, you know, it's funny because Schmidt, I just listened to a podcast with Jack Schmidt, and he said that they had a two hour and 45 minute hold on the launch pad because um, they had a, the oxygen tank was one of the oxygen tanks in one of the Saturn V uh, segments was pressurized, but they were getting a message that it wasn't, but it took him a few hours to, to do a fix. Um, and he fell asleep and um, he slept for a few hours on, on the pad and he was very aware from talking to the other astronauts that you're not going to get a lot of sleep for the next eight days. Yeah. So grab any sleep that you can get. So he uh, he made a point of drifting or letting himself drift off on the launch pad while they had nothing to do while the engineers tried to figure out how to, you know, resolve this pressurized tank issue. Yeah. I mean, look, if, if you're out there for three days, I mean, just imagine how tiring that is. You know, they don't talk about it here, but um, a lot of the a lot of the Apollo 17 video and audio is really notable for how exuberant uh, Gene Cernan and Jack Schmidt were. Like they sing and they goof around. Yeah. Like like they're really having a good time. Like the bit where they find the orange soil, they're so excited. But yeah, you know they say at the same time like their exuberance got them through, but they were really in a lot of pain. Like especially their arms and their shoulders. Uh, from moving in the suits for that long, you know, for yeah. doing it for seven hours, not two. And, you know, they, they didn't want to give voice to the fact that they were both really, really hurting. But, you know, uh, I think that just especially, especially, uh, you know, Schmidt, like he's the scientist who got there and he's the geologist who got there. Like he knew what an incredibly unique opportunity this was for him. Yeah. Um, and he really appreciated it despite all the pain he was feeling. Oh yeah, and they uh, brought and back that, a huge quantity of materials too. You know that they yeah, super successful. Two hundred fifty pounds, basically. I I imagine a lot of the listeners haven't read um have read Gene Cernan's book, but if you haven't read Gene Cernan's book, uh, you should read his book Last Man on the Moon. I actually met Gene Cernan once at Sky Harbor. Um, I I was at Sky Harbor on a business trip, and I was my flight was delayed, and I saw. Gene Cernan sitting at the bar and I was about 90% sure that it was him. And I kept staring at him and he caught me staring at him and I was like, oh crap, I got to do something. So I just walked up to him and I said, Commander Cernan. And he was like, yes. And I just reached out and I shook his hand and told him who I was and that I'd read his book. And I sat with him for about half an hour and he gave me an autograph at the end of it. It was pretty cool. And it turned out in the end, we were both waiting for the same flight. He was in first. I was in coach, I might add. <laughs> um, but uh, I did I, I did get to meet uh, my, I did, I did get to meet one of the moonwalkers. The only other Apollo astronaut I met is I once met and had lunch. I'm not kidding. When I was down there during my uh, research time in NASA, I met and had lunch with Joe Kerwin, who's a Capcom in a lot of Apollo missions and uh, flew on later flew on Skylab. He was the first American physician in space. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, but anyway, but I did meet Gene Cernan once at Sky Harbor. And then we get back to a little uh, uh, a little copyright infringement, right? We, we bring it all back to uh, Georges Méliès. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And his film is finally completed, and he's, he's sure it's going to make him a ton of money. Right, especially in the U.S., because the U.S. is this, you know, massive growing new frontier and... Um, you know, he makes the movie, releases it in Europe, and then you know, it wasn't like now when Disney releases everything to the second around the globe, right? So then, you know, it was it was out for quite a while in Europe, and he wanted to bring it to the U.S., and it turns out that, like, Edison and some other... It wasn't just Edison. It was like a handful of people were it was, involved. It was Edison sort of people working for Edison, right. is what it's implied, and or some said, of, actually. Right, and some of the some other sort of wealthy sponsors or whatever, I think, got in on it. And they basically copied and circulated and sold um, the Voyage to the Moon around the U.S. already because they'd seen like, it. And been before in- Torrent even existed. <laughs> right, they did the analog torrent. No, right, the analog Napster torrent, right, whatever, right. dark web. They'd already basically, you know, bought a print or somewhere in Stolen Europe it or and, something. Right, and copied it and then distributed and sold it all over the US already. And and not, you know, they no none of the creators of the film in Paris had got any money for it, which is unbelievable. Right. Yeah. When they got there with their copy of the film under their arm, so to speak, you know, it was already playing in, in hundreds of theaters. Yeah, it was all, the, the kit was already done. And what could they do? You know, how could they recover that? They yeah. couldn't. I know. I mean, honestly, they, you'd think that that's what the court is for, but who knows? Um, and then um, we get Gene Cernan's farewell words on the moon. Yeah. Um, and then the, there's very frank discussion that we stopped going to the moon for purely political reasons. There's a ton more to see, a ton more to do, a ton more to learn. And the money just wasn't there. You know, it wasn't a politically viable thing anymore. Um, and then we get I actually like it. You know, it's, it's you know, it's, they do a little bit of a, a, a clip show at the end where they do a, a video recap of Apollo 8 through Apollo 17, where you get to sort of see highlights of each of the mission overlaid with uh, JFK's famous Rice University speech. Right. We choose um, to go to the moon, which is like, you know, the, they put clips of that in the, it's in the, um, it's in the opening, the, right. The opening credits uh, montage of the series. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Right. I, I, the thing is, every time I try to impersonate Kennedy, I end up sounding like Mayor Quimby. I yeah. on the Simpsons. I know the Simpsons. <laughs> they did a, such a perfect job. It just you're right. I think that Dawes Springfield should have a monorail. <laughs> um, and then we finish with pics of uh, the astronauts, a sort of a, a montage of all the astronauts, and then with a lot of uh, from the Earth to the Moon score fanfare. Yep. Uh, the show signs off. Yep. Um, and Joe Angle is like, God damn it, I gotta wait for STS two. <laughs> you know, he was like, Congratulations, Jack. I'm very happy for you. <laughs> Perhaps he'll fall down a flight of stairs. <laughs> um, I assume, you know, let's look this up. I assume Joe Angle was the backup. Right? I don't know. No? Let's see. The Apollo 17 uh, backup crew is actually 
Dave Scott, Al Warden, and Jim Irwin, which is really interesting. Al Warden again. Wow. Yeah. Well, but that's the entire Apollo 15 crew, right? Yeah. That's them again, all uh, just waiting in the wings there. That's really interesting. Poor Joe Angle. Um, anyway, I you know, just looking back on it, I mean, I think that this is a, just a tremendous achievement in television. I mean, I obviously have enormous, what can only be called enormous bias, but I think it's my favorite miniseries of all time. I don't know if I've watched a miniseries as much and enjoyed a miniseries as much as From the Earth to the Moon. You know, miniseries have kind of gone away, I guess, in the cable era or in the sort of streaming era. But I mean, miniseries were a big deal when we were when we were younger. Well, I mean, right. Shogun. They're really gone away because they, you know, like Netflix buys a ton of them, like from the Brits and whatever. Like there's there's a not everything comes back, you know, like some stuff is just a one off. But. You know, what, what isn't around is, you know, if they make anything, I don't know, about, they don't make anything that's that's dedicated in the way that this series was. This is, not, this was, not now. But right. this was big in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I mean, for example, I mean, just off the top of my head, I can think of a Shogun, right? North and South, Rich no, Man, I, Poor Man, it, Jesus of Nazareth. No, you know what I mean? Like, I don't mean that stuff. They were big. I mean about... about sciencey or dorky kind of topics of the space program or you know they, they don't you know they're, they're gonna make um soap opera type stuff like all forever but it's rare to get enthusiasm strong enough to make something about about the space program Especially so, and especially something that's based on true events. You know, now like we have, you know, we have things that are we we've gone away from the term miniseries to the term limited series, right? right. Like for example, True Detective or Fargo come to mind, right? Right. Both of which are amazing television shows, but you know, they're fiction. It's not the same as watching something that's based on. Uh, real life. You know, I never watched the 1977 Jesus of Nazareth, but like when you read about miniseries online, a lot of people say that that was the best miniseries ever made. And I, I haven't seen it myself, but people say that it's unbelievably impressive. But you know, but look, this this is special. I mean, they did like an episode and a half about geology. You know, like right. Like who does that? Well, right, and and they and they they. They made it both for the diehards, right, for the Dugs and the Peters, but they also made it so that people who didn't know the story could come and watch it and be interested in this thing. Right, and it would it would it would yield an appreciation of what happened, and also be, by and large, quite nice to watch. Um, and it looked good, and it had it had good actors and they spent money on the effects like i love the score to this thing it's just was very well made you know that it's it's unique in that way i mean they you know yes gene cern's little biography um is on netflix now so that you get stuff occasionally but it's not to this scope there's there hasn't been anything else to this scope yeah no i think so i think so um we're gearing up, by the way, for our Jesus of Nazareth podcast. <laughs> we're going to do all the major. We're going to do a Jesus, a Moses, and a Muhammad, and a Confucius. <laughs> and then we're going to do Shogun. 
<laughs> we're gonna do the world religious figures podcast i don't know i kind of miss mini series you know because you know it, it it doesn't take you know like when you when when breaking bad was on for example like i didn't watch breaking bad when it started and i kind of you know three four five years into it i got interested and started watching but you know like i was like you know 78 episodes to watch like it's it's interesting to tell the entire story in a limited number of shows and like for example this show in 12 one-hour episodes covers an enormous amount of events with a huge cast of characters yeah. you know who are real people that you can read about and some of them are still alive you know what i mean like yeah like it has a different it has a, just a different feel because it's based on something real than, for example, you know, a James Clavell novel. Yeah. So also, you know, on our other podcast, you're going to have to do the Shinto one because I just still don't get that shit. <laughs> All righty. Well, you did your French accent. So for this episode, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll take it. You're going to have to do the outline on the Shinto episode. Right. Exactly. Um, but, uh, you know, but again, when I look back over the miniseries I've watched, and I've certainly watched my share, like this for me is a high watermark. I, this is like very much like, you know, this is like Tom Hanks said to Ron Howard, like, there's this guy named Dog, and he'd really like the show, and we should invest $18 million and make it for him, you know? And Ron Howard was like, yeah, that's a great idea. Like, that's literally how I felt watching this. Like, this was like, literally, I could not have been more in the center of their target audience. Right. Us and there's like 5,000 people around the planet who speak English and are interested enough that are probably going to, you know, listen. But, you know, I mean, I, I'd be curious to know what the ratings were. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it was on cable. Uh, I'll say viewer. Well, HBO, though, was, you know, it was big, was big guns, especially then. But and this and it was, you know, Tom Hanks, Ron Howard. I mean, it was it was high powered. And it was promoted the, you know, the thing that's interesting is it's like, it, it's such an, I mean, this is why we decided to do a podcast about it. I mean, to sort of draw some attention to it. I mean, it's, it's really niche at this point. I mean, it's not exactly in heavy, you know, rotation on the rerun schedule. No, and actually HBO will never show it again because it's not an HD. Exactly. You know, exactly. Um, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm looking online. I don't see, uh, I don't see if I, I don't see the ratings. So like, I don't get a sense of, uh, how many people watched it. Although I remember at the time there was a lot of buzz about it. Yeah. Um, and a lot of articles, a lot of press, like it did. I, I, I imagine just like the real moon landings, a lot of people watched the first few episodes and kind of drifted away. Um, I, I didn't have HBO at the time. I watched it. I watched that on VHS. I actually own this on VHS and DVD, but I watched it on VHS when it came out on VHS uh, in 1999. Uh, yeah, it was but, the one um, thing that the NASA archivist said he wasn't going to make a copy of and put that on the shit. <laughs> He's like, dude, come on. Just go to That's the Virgin Megastore and buy it. <laughs> Back when there was a Virgin Megastore. By the way, don't you miss the Virgin Megastore? I miss Tower what Records. What was the... Uh, and there was Tower Records, and then there was the third one. There was the other sort of like... Um, nothing Nothing was... I mean, especially like the Tower on Broadway in New York, nothing... Yeah, nothing no, no, but there was the, the Virgin Megastore in Chicago was incredible. But there was a third one. There was a third... It was the same exact idea. It was a third company that did it. I can't remember what it was called. Yeah, but that was for porn. <laughs> well, they were all for pornography. They all had that special section. Behind the curtain, you know, um, I would not that I would ever look at such filth. I have been told by others that it existed. Um, 
Is that what was, <laughs> but, that what was uh, behind that curtain? <laughs> uh, what was I gonna say? Uh, but I don't know. Like, I would, we need to. We need if we had miniseries again. But you know what? They're probably not coming back. You know, uh, I, I'm not probably not coming back. Uh, it's the gold. The cost of producing episodic television is so low now, and everybody wants to sell. Um, uh, you know, a big series to Netflix. You know, yep. um, what I'm trying to remember what the third one was called. There was the Virgin Megastore, there was Tower Records, and there was a third one. Columbia House. <laughs> no, no, no. There was another one. I can't. I know, and, and, and there was one by us. There was one by us. Uh, uh, was it know. HMV? No, there were nothing was that big. The other well, ones were. A- no, there were a bunch know. of little smaller chains that weren't as good. I don't know. There was one. I'm trying. There was one in Boston. There was a chain in Boston that was amazing. It was, and we had a we had a really good Virgin Mega Store in Boston for a couple of years. But anyway, um, but anyway, but um, as we look back, I don't know. Like uh, uh, nothing but fond memories for me. And again, we bashed Tom Hanks a couple of times in uh, over the course of this podcast for some of the decisions he made. Made, but I certainly am grateful to Tom Hanks for. Uh, for throwing his weight behind this and uh and for bosom and, buddies you know, yeah and getting this thing across the finish line right and peter scolari got a job in this one again you know yeah uh, but uh I, I will officially go on the record and say thank you tom hanks for uh, uh, getting this made for us you know and thanks for thinking of me in that meeting with ron howard when you guys were talking about making it i i appreciate it very much yeah you know what they they, they mentioned you in that meeting because they're like you know we're trying to get some video from apollo 17 but some dude <laughs> signed it all out he never returned it <laughs> gone <laughs> we heard he absconded with an entire box of videotapes it's, it's, it's the most anybody has ever requested from nasa is this guy i literally still have them all of course <laughs> you know it was a it was a they, they recorded them on uh sp that's how you knew they were serious of course <laughs> they recorded them on the good speed yeah oh my god all right. Well, listen, should we say our own sign out? This is like literally this is the moment when Peter and Doug uh, were climbing the steps back up onto the lamb. Like we're stepping off the moon for the last time. and We're going to say our farewells. Uh, if you made it to episode 12, thank you guys for listening. This was a labor of love uh, on our part for sure. And we appreciate you guys listening very much. Please check out our other podcast, uh, Popcorn Drink Combo, where Peter and I discuss uh, both current and vintage uh, movies with a kind of a sci-fi bent, but not just sci-fi. Yeah, you'll you'll like that if you listen to this. All right, Thanks and thank you listening. guys all for listening. All righty, we're officially signing out. Uh, we are, I believe, what would we say? We're secure at Stable One. The ship is secure. Uh, this is From the Earth to the Moon, signing off. See you.